Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. I'm excited to do this podcast episode for two reasons. One, immigration and naturalization are some of my favorite areas of genealogical research. And two, I have one of my favorite experts on the subject with me on the show today. Stephen Danko, PhD, is a genealogy lecturer and a very popular blogger. And in today's show, he's helping us cross the pond through the use of immigration and naturalization records. He'll talk to us about the challenges that we'll face in locating these records. Some people don't know if their ancestors were ever naturalized, but they do know that they immigrated. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you don't even know if the records are there. The second thing is naturalization records can be held almost anywhere because at one time anybody could go to any court and be naturalized. So you're not sure where the records are located. And even worse, you might not even be sure what county they're in. The documents you may not know about. So if somebody applied for for citizenship, they would have to come up with a certificate of arrival for which most typically they would have to pay the government to go and search for them. And the process by which these records were created. Passenger lists that we're most familiar with, especially the Ellis Island lists, those were lists that were required by the United States government. And so they were filled out in the old country, and once the passengers got to the United States, those were turned over to the United States government. But before we hear from Steve, let's hear from you, and we'll do that at the mailbox. listener Barbara Murphy from Long Island, New York, wrote in to clarify a few points on the Social Security Death Index that we've talked about here on the show, most recently with my guest Arlene Eagle, who mentioned it in regards to obtaining birth records. Barbara writes, Lisa, I have been a longtime listener and love all the information that you give in very simple and understandable language. I've used your Google videos and use iGoogle now. Oh, that's great, Barbara. And Barbara is a premium member, and so she's referring to the series of videos that come with premium membership. She says she listened to the podcast with Arlene Eagle about the SSDI and thought that Arlene gave the impression that only people who were receiving Social Security benefits when they died uh, would be listed, or if they weren't, someone had to notify the Social Security Administration. Many people don't notify or don't even know that there is a death benefit to be gotten, she says. And that's a very good point that Barbara makes. It's important to be aware of the exceptions. And I also cover many of these in episode number three of this podcast. And in that episode, I also give you some search tips for locating some of those hard-to-find records that are there, but they just don't pop up in in a simple search. And Barbara also points out that even if they aren't on the list, if you know the death date, you can send in for the Social Security application and get the birth date that way. So thanks so much for writing in, Barbara, and bringing up some of these exceptions that we may run into and what our options are. 
In order to get into the Social Security program and receive a Social Security number, workers had to complete an application form, and it's called the SS5 form. And they also had to provide proof of their age. And as Barbara mentions, you can not only do a free search to see if your ancestor is listed in the Social Security Death Index, but you can request a copy of that original application, even if you don't see them listed in the index. Now, copies of Social Security applications aren't cheap. (laughs) They run about $27 for each individual copy. But they do provide some great information, and I personally wouldn't miss getting them, at least for my direct ancestors, like my great-grandparents, my grandparents. You can find a a standard letter that you can use uh, and send to the Social Security Administration, and it's available with the search results that you'll get on Ancestry's Social Security Death Index, which is a free index. And all you have to do is click on the Write Letter link available with all the search results in Ancestry's SSDI, and that letter can be printed and mailed to the Social Security Administration to request a photocopy of your ancestor's original SS5 form. Now, one thing to keep in mind is you'll need to send the name and the Social Security number of the person that you're researching. And in most cases, you'll be able to get that that number yourself from the SSDI. But if it doesn't appear in the index, you might want to locate their Social Security number by looking in personal papers, maybe financial papers, um, or it might appear on their death certificate. Or you could even check the voter registration rolls at the county courthouse and see if by chance it's listed there. Now, if these sources don't produce the number, you can request a Social Security number search with the Social Security Administration, and that's even more expensive. (laughs) To request it, it's $29, and you have to provide their full name, their state of birth, and the date of birth. And I will have the address that you would mail that to in the show notes for this episode, which is number 29. Providing names of parents would also help a lot, especially if they have a common surname. And be sure and also provide a proof of death, like sending them a photocopy of the death certificate, because records of living people are not publicly available, and you just want to save time and prove to them right up front that you are requesting that information for a deceased person. Thanks again, Barbara. And as always, it's great to hear from you listeners. And if you would like to write me with questions, comments, or your genealogy experiences, you can email me at genealogymadeeasy at gmail.com. And of course, another way to stay in touch is to sign up for my free e-newsletter. Just go to my website, genealogygems.tv, and click the brown sign up button. You'll find that in the left hand column. You'll get an email about every other week with information on the podcast as well as some of my favorite gems like um, some research tips or great websites that I've come across. And as a thank you for signing up, I'm going to send you a link to my 20 page ebook called Five Fabulous Google Research Strategies for the Family Historian. I know you'll get use out of that. (laughs) And as Barbara mentioned, if you decide to become a Genealogy Gems premium member, then you'll have access to my instructional videos. The current series, the one that Barbara was talking about, is called Google, a gold mine of Genealogy Gems. You can watch as I walk you through 
how to use Google to its full potential in real time, right there on the computer screen. (laughs) And if you're like me, it really helps to see it being done and not just hear about it. These videos will teach you how to get much more out of Google than you ever imagined was there. And the best part is that all of it is geared specifically for family researchers just like you. So if you want to join me and become a member of Genealogy Gems, just head to genealogygems.tv and click the Join Today button. That's over on the right-hand side, and it's kind of a blue button. And uh, sign up, and you can start using those videos and, of course, be getting the members-only podcast. There are two episodes every month. So if you join, you can get those right away. invited to the show, Steve Danko. And Steve, I want to first just say welcome and thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure to uh, be invited by you. (laughs) Well, you know, when I start thinking about passenger lists and immigration, um, this is an area that we don't always have to jump into right off the bat in our research, but eventually we hope that we'll always get there. And today you came and spoke to my local society, which I was thrilled to have you there because um, you really gave us the overall picture of what we can find in terms of passenger lists and naturalization, but more importantly, you opened our eyes to the kinds of um, information that we may find on there that we just overlooked the first time. So I want to get into that, but I would just love to have you give us that overview. When the person has been researching their ancestor and they get to that place, they know, I think I'm ready to go across the pond. And we know that there's probably a passenger list out there. But even sooner than that, you're probably going to look for naturalization. Well, I think about working backwards. Mm-hmm. Naturalization is going to come after. But I'm wondering if that always is the first place you go, or do you go to passenger lists and then jump back to immigration and naturalization? Am I making sense with that question? Yes, yes. And, and you're right. We're always taught to start with the most recent and move back in time. Right. So you start with the death records, and then you move to the marriage records, and then you move to the birth records. But with immigration and naturalization, sometimes that's not the easiest way to go. Mm-hmm. Because if if I were to tell somebody, all right, before you can go to the passenger lists, you have to find your ancestors' naturalization records. Right. Well, Which occurred later than, so that would be logical. Right. But first of all, some people don't know if their ancestors were ever naturalized, but they do know that they immigrated. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you don't even know if the records are there. The second thing is naturalization records can be held almost anywhere because yes. at one time anybody could go to any court and be naturalized. So you're not sure where the records are located. And even worse, you might not even be sure what county they're in. Mm-hmm. Um, were they naturalized in uh, San Francisco County, or were they naturalized in Contra Costa County? And, and we might not know that, even though we know that they lived in this part of California, and they might have lived in both places. You don't know where they, they were naturalized. So naturalization papers are a little di- bit difficult to find. Added to that is the fact that most of them have not been uh, digitized or indexed, so they are they're difficult records to find. Which is why sometimes, if you can find their uh, passenger manifests, at least for a certain period of time, 
from about, uh, well, specifically from 1926 to 1943. If your ancestors were naturalized in that time period, it's most likely that their uh, immigration or passenger lists will indicate that fact, and it'll tell you, it'll give you clues on how to find their naturalization papers. And and that's what I thought was so fascinating about what you were talking about today, because I know in my case, my great-grandparents came in 1910. I know they applied for naturalization in Illinois, where they first kind of settled, but then they applied again out here in California in the 40s, and I guess they never completed it back from the Illinois. So there was kind of this scattering, and I found that it was really difficult to know that. I mean, I knew where they had lived, so you could go to that local county and and guess that would be a pretty good guess. But it was really getting the passenger list that seemed to help me nail down where the logical places were to go. And you talked about that there were even annotations that got made on those passenger lists years later when they did apply that would give you an indication when you see them, ah, that that naturalization may exist. Right, and those annotations were made because in 1926... The immigration laws stated that in order for somebody to apply for citizenship, if they immigrated after 1906, they must have a certificate of arrival to prove that they arrived in the country legally. Now, that's a lot of conditions there. So the person must have applied for citizenship between 1926 and 1942 or 43. The reason for the 1942-1943 limit is because the passenger lists were microfilmed in 1942-1943. Therefore, if there were any annotations on them, they had to be made before the time they were microfilmed. Oh, right. Otherwise, there, there wouldn't have been any reason to, for, for that, speci- that that stipulation. And a certificate of arrival was not something that they were handed upon arrival. This is something you're, in a sense, applying for to prove. So the way to prove it? Right. So if somebody applied for, for citizenship, they would have to come up with a certificate of arrival. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Now, let's head back to my conversation with Stephen Danko. So if somebody applied for for citizenship, they would have to come up with a certificate of arrival, for which most typically they would have to pay the government to go and search for them. The government would search the passenger manifests and find them on a passenger manifest. Probably the originals, I'm, I'm assuming we're talking. The original ones, the paper ones, that's correct. And if they found them in that passenger manifest, they would issue a certificate of arrival and then make a notation directly on the passenger manifest of the certificate of arrival number and the date on which that certificate of arrival was issued. So now you have two numbers that may help you find the naturalization papers. You have the number of a certificate of arrival and you have the date. So... Even that isn't going to guarantee that you can find the naturalization papers because the certificate of arrival number, the first number on it is the naturalization district. And that naturalization district will uh, narrow your search. It might narrow your search to the northeast or Mm -hmm. the midwest or the west coast. It won't tell you exactly 
which city they were next. Kind of like a social security number. The elements of those give us an idea of an area, but it's not going to tell you a town. Right, right. And the second item, of course, is the date of the certificate of arrival, which will tell you the approximate year in which they applied for citizenship and probably pretty close to the time that they were naturalized. So with those two items, an approximate location and an approximate date, you're much closer to finding the naturalization papers than you were before. I imagine particularly that year, because for many of us, folks didn't move around quite as much, so you would maybe know that county, but then you have to go in the county courthouse and look at the clerk and say, well, it could have been this 20-year span, and they're going to go, ha you know, it's going to cost you for all these searches. But if you could walk in and say, I know it was 1930 you know, or whatever the year is that's been indicated, oh, you've really narrowed it down and, and made it a quicker process to locate. Right. We all know that uh, anything that you can help you narrow down your search is going to help a lot. Yeah. Much better than going through every record page by page. So for those who maybe were earlier than that, um, in general, where do you go when you're looking for a passenger list? I'm assuming maybe first stop the Internet. What do you, where do you look online? For the passenger lists, yeah, if, it's, uh, if it's Ellis Island, if, if the passenger came in through New York, I think that uh, I might stop at the Ellis Island website. Other places to go, um, Ancestry has a great collection of immigrant passenger manifests, and they have them from ports all around the country. They have they claim that they have every readily accessible passenger manifest for the United States, and so that's a, a great resource. If your ancestors entered through Philadelphia or Galveston or New Orleans, those passenger manifests won't be on the Ellis Island site. So you'll have to go someplace else. Ancestry is a good place for that. Steve Morse has a great search engine for the Ellis Island site. His search engine doesn't extend to uh, the other ports of entry, such as Philadelphia okay. or New Orleans. It only extends to the Ellis Island site. And so if you go to his site, you can find a much more powerful a search engine than the one on the Ellis Island site itself. Mm-hmm. It gives you a lot more flexibility, I would think, in terms of keywords or even searching a village. You mentioned today, and I thought, oh, i got to go home and do this, that I already know the passenger list of my great-grandfather, but I'd love to go back to Steve's site and just search the village. Um, his hometown, and see who else came from there. You know, because again, we want to kind of work sideways too. Right, and th- that's a great thing to do. If you know where your ancestors came from, you can search on Steve Morse's uh, one-step web tool site. You can search for the name of the village, and uh, you know, who knows? You might find a distant cousin, or you might find a neighbor, and that could be interesting in just fleshing out your family history as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, exactly. Now, if we do have some of these other ports, you were saying we could look at Ancestry. Is there a, p- a point where we have to go somewhere else or go in person to the further back we go and trying to find these lists? Well, there are a couple of other places that, that you could search. Quite often, as people left Europe, they left behind departure information. So the departure information is in the form of, for example, the... Hamburg immigration lists, mm-hmm. which are also on Ancestry, by the way. Um, all of these, these records, of course, are on microfilm in the Family History Library, so you can look at them on microfilm, or you can 
search for them on Ancestry. Uh, you might find your ancestors in one of the departure lists from Hamburg or uh, Bremen, or in the case of of some of the passenger uh, steamship lines, um, those lines themselves kept departure lists. So you can search. As far as I know, th- those records are not have not been digitized, but you can find them in the Family History Library. You can search, for example, for White Star Line or Red Star Line, and if that was one of the lines that uh, owned the ship on which your ancestors arrived, then you can search their lists, which are microfilmed. Thanks so much to my special guest, Stephen Danko. Next week, we will continue our conversation with a discussion of departure passenger lists, and then we'll make our way into naturalization records. So you're not going to want to miss that. And that will be next week in episode 30. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021, and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>